I just want you to know that the Jets won their game. Really? <laughs> yes. How the fuck did Zach even, Wilson? I'm actually like so confused by that. Even when I saw it, I went, huh. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies of summer 2023. I'm Zach Pocklip. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And we are talking about movies this summer that came out um, from May to September because we kind of had our first summer movie season for the first time since 2019, if we're being real. Um, I was trying to look at the previous years and boy, it was scarce. But before we get into this year's slate, uh, or the summer slate rather, Amanda, why don't you tell us what you think makes a summer movie? So if we're talking logically, a summer movie is a movie that comes out <laughs> in between the months of May and September. No, a summer movie, I think, is inherently entertaining. I think that that's like a big component of being a summer movie. There is quote unquote like Oscar movie season, which is usually like fall, winter, I think that this year, like you said, was like our first really excellent year since the pandemic of movies that came out. So many movies I went to were packed this summer, which is amazing. I love to see that. The amount of times I like begrudgingly stood in line to buy tickets, which is great. It's like a great problem to have. I'm like a physical I was going to say, you're an in-person box office buyer still. Yes. First of all, absolutely. I get angry when I don't get to have the actual ticket of the movie I just saw. (laughs) I have movie tickets from like 2009. Yeah. Like I've always always been this way. (laughs) I used to, yeah, I definitely used to save up the, the ticket stubs. I think that's a good point about, you know, summer movies being inherently entertaining the summer blockbuster you think of jaws or like independence day or the avengers movies usually marvel kind of kicks off the summer slate in the last 10 15 years but i also think summer movies especially for two kids who grew up in the desert is just nostalgia because mm-hmm. it's hot outside and like you just go to the movies like i remember spending summers and just walking to the theater um when i was staying with my sister in the outer banks because it, i needed to kill a couple hours and it was really hot outside so i watched like harry potter and the half-blood prince like six times <laughs> because it timed out well and then i could go uh you know to whatever i was doing it was funny i remember either our end of year pod for 2022 or sometime in 2022 complaining about there being a lack of movies coming out after top gun maverick Mm, Um, mm -hmm. and how it was like wow i just wish i could get to the theater and go watch a movie but it's just top gun maverick and barbarian and then this year came and i just felt like i was missing every single movie possible i just like could not get to the theater enough because there was such a wealth of releases which is awesome and also personally i just had to inhale a bunch of movies in the last week to feel good about doing this podcast (laughs) yeah there's a lot that i missed But there's a lot I saw. Like, I saw so many movies, and yet I still missed so many other movies. That's how many movies there are. Granted, did I see Barbie and Oppenheimer twice in the theater? Yes, I did. So, like, could I have used one of those times to see something else? I'm sure I could have, but I didn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) And and to, to bring back your point about the awards ramifications, I think that this summer will be even more crucial because of the writer strike and yeah. the 
the writers and the actor strikes. Um, we've seen a few movies already delayed, such as My Beloved Dune Part 2 and Challengers, and I'm sure that there will be more Hopefully not. Hopefully they'll just like, I don't know, pay the people that are doing the work. But um, I feel like the big players that came out in you know March, April and this summer will have a better shot at Oscars because the field will be thinned out just a little bit. Right. Like Dune was going to take a lot of nominations in the in the technical categories. Um, and then who knows what other movies would have popped up as the year goes on. But I do think this summer. You know, it's been a good year at the box office for a lot of these movies, and uh, hopefully that translates to uh, movies that people care about being at the Oscars, if we have an Oscars next year, because apparently that's also up in the year. I'm sure Oppenheimer is thrilled that Dune is not coming out this yes, year. Yes, <laughs> abs- the, the Dune versus Oppenheimer duel would have been insufferable. Yeah. And I say it- that as a person who loved Oppenheimer and was predisposed to love dune also huge for barbie too because um, yeah huge for barbie but also i mean yergos lenthimos might be coming for some of those barbie slots so we'll talk about that later so summer is for fun and anxiety is for the fall and winter which means my time is coming up I don't know how to transition that to like let's start talking about these summer movies but let's start talking about these summer movies we have no real format i guess we're just gonna start bringing up some movies and discussing them and then we probably have some categories and we'll talk about um, movies we're anticipating for the rest of the year for listeners the movies we're considering are movies that came out from the beginning of may to approximately mid-september that's like what we're going to be discussing um so it's going to start with guardians 3 and it's going to go all the way through bottoms and that's like the slate we're working with so if a movie comes out like two weeks from now, since so at the time of recording, so sorry, it's not going to be on this podcast. But just so you have an idea, listeners, of of what we're going to be talking about, those are our um, parameters. Yes, we will not be talking about uh, the Nun Two. I know you guys were all anticipating no. my thoughts on that film, um, <laughs> a f- a film whose ad I had to block on TikTok because the ad <laughs> kept coming up for me. <laughs> and That's so when, funny. When I am. Up at 3 a.m. It's the last thing I need. That's so funny. All right. So with those parameters set, let's kick off our summer movie talk. It would be impossible to talk about the movies of the 2023 summer without starting with Barbenheimer, the event of the summer. One of the biggest movie events in the last five years or so. And let's kick it off by talking about Barbie. I mean, Amanda, where to begin with this one? So Greta Gerwig has always been on our... And our thoughts in our something we're both really attracted to. You and I both have an incredibly personal relationship to Lady Bird. And I think from like day one, we were both like season tickets, whatever Greta Gerwig makes. And she hit it out of the park. And that is from a script writing standpoint, I think is one of the most important things of this film, but also to genuine movie stars, which is not something we have a lot of anymore, being movie stars was just joyous. And she hit me with so many emotions I was not expecting when I went into Barbie. I cried harder the second time than I did the first time. But the first time I saw Barbie was hands down the best theater experience I've had in years. I don't know if that left you with much to say, but I'd love to know what you thought because we haven't talked about it much on this pod. You said basically all of my thoughts, but to piggyback off of that, like, you know, the whole time in the build up to this movie, we were wondering, 
Greta Gerwig doing a Barbie movie that seems like, you know, it's a big jump in terms of budget, in terms of scope. It's some, you know, big IP. How is she going to gratify this? Mm-hmm. Um, her and Noah Baumbach, like, how are they going to write to this big blockbuster? Is Barbie going to be a blockbuster? The cast was stacked. The set pictures were all over the internet. You know, there's the anxiety of, like, this is Mattel trying to take over Hollywood. They have a bunch of movies in the docket. That all said, it's a hilarious film. It's a well executed. The sets are beautiful. There's like a such a a great campiness. Again, performances knocked it out of the park. Ryan Gosling really not stole the show, but he like that's why people love the nice guys. It's because of like this version of Ryan Gosling. I love deadpan wooden Ryan Gosling too. Like we talked about Place Beyond the Pines on this podcast, but to see him having that much fun, I think he sounds great in the songs, like better than he did in La La Land. Mm-hmm. Um, and Margot Robbie is perfect as well. Like she, the physicality of the performance, the comedic timing, the amount of emotion that she can portray in this very bubbly fish out of water role, not to be like the dude, but like, I don't think it's a perfect movie. Like there's parts of this movie that don't work at all. Like definitely. <laughs> I'm happy that Connor Swindells is in the film as like, will ferrell's lackey but like none of that makes sense none of that really hits for me but it's undeniable that this is the movie of the summer like it made a billion dollars um it's hilarious to me that greta gerwig and noah bombeck wrote a movie that made a billy greta gerwig a billion dollars that's so exciting (laughs) if anything i'm just happy that this movie gave us billy eilish doing a greta gerwig impression yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, I want to circle back. I agree. It's not a perfect film. And especially watching it a second time, I thought that they were more in my face. The parts I really didn't like because the highs are so high. There's randomly a car commercial in the middle of this film. I don't I really understand a lot of the Mattel stuff. I get it, but it's way too long. Why are the Mattel people in Barbie land? Like, I don't know. It just sort of loses me. But just for like the first hour and the last hour to be so perfect, I have an easier time excusing the middle half hour that I really don't care for a lot. Greta has such a love and admiration for old Hollywood and those sets being, you know, the the painted backdrops. The words that she's used that I keep thinking about is authentic artificiality. And mm-hmm. like that to me is like, she nailed it. She hit it out of the park. It's so exciting that she did it. Yeah, it's it's a bona fide hit. It's one of the biggest movies of the decade so far. It's kind of undeniable. So um, it kicked off a whole another era of both her career and maybe the movie industry, depending on how things go. Um, let's move on to the second half of the Barbenheimer experience. That is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, uh, starring Killian Murphy, J. Robert Oppenheimer. So I loved Tenet. Okay. Because that's a movie that was like, don't think about it. And then I was like, okay, cool. I won't think about it. And that was also one of the clearest examples of like, oh, Christopher Nolan just loves putting a site, like a an avatar of himself into a movie. And like, that's what Robert Pattinson was. I really enjoyed Oppenheimer. It's easy to make fun of Christopher Nolan movies because he can't write a woman to save his life. He loves messing with timelines. But he is also one of the signature filmmakers, I think, working right now. Um, I think that's pretty undeniable. Um, he's one of the few filmmakers that can get a historical three-hour epic into theaters over the summer and make a lot of like hundreds of millions of dollars on it. And I think this movie is technically sick. Like It's one of the sickest edited movies I've seen in a long time. It felt like one big montage for the first like two hours, 15 minutes, but not in a way that like was annoying. It's just constantly moving. And we just talked about Two for the Road, but there was a lot of 
two for the road vibe in terms of the matched cuts over timelines mm. or the responses mm-hmm. to the timelines to each other that I really, really enjoyed. Again, a flawed movie, but I think the technical aspects of this film are so impressive. What were your thoughts on on Oppenheimer? Did you enjoy it? Did you bump up against any parts of it? I saw Oppenheimer twice, and I'm really, really glad I did. First time I saw it was in my Barbenheimer. I took like two days to see it, but um, in that first weekend, and there was so much to take in. I don't think I had like a good grasp on the film, to be completely honest. There was just like a lot to look at the whole time. And then like a few weeks later, I got to return to the screening. I saw an IMAX both times. And I was really blown away the second time I saw it. I was super, super impressed. I felt like the second time I understood what all the rave reviews were about, finally. But I had seen the film. I did listen to a podcast or two. I think that Christopher Nolan, I think, is just one of the only people who is making blockbusters artistically. I want more people who give a shit about movies to be making movies. And he is that guy. And it doesn't matter to me that he wants to make, you know, a timeline movie. Like, it doesn't matter to me what he wants to make because he just makes great films that people want to see. So I really loved that aspect. I was super thrilled to see Robert Downey Jr. be an actor again. I mean, the thing about Oppenheimer is that every fucking person is in this movie. Every white male who acts is like in this film. (laughs) Yeah, Will Stronghold from Sky High is in this film. Yeah, it's it's great. So that was really fun. And I feel like the first time I watched it, it was a lot of like, oh, it's that guy. Oh my God, it's that guy. Where the second time I had a better recognition of which storylines I needed to pay attention to and which ones like weren't really that important to me. And I wasn't distracted, I guess. And I felt like I had a deeper understanding of what some people's um, intentions were. And I really could like care more about what the core characters were about. And I also feel like I understood the timeline a lot better the second time. Not that it was confusing the first time, but there's so much movie. So I really uh, advocate for people seeing this a second time if they were kind of iffy on it. But it is technically gorgeous. It, it really is a summer blockbuster because it is technically impressive while also being like really thrilling. I think that third hour of the film, people kind of had some qualms about as we get more space from the movie that will kind of age better. I think so, too. Just because the the pacing was such a jarring shift down. Are you prepared for the like Oppenheimer (laughs) for the backlash of Oppenheimer to come up during Oscar season? That's like inevitable. Like it already Uh. boiled up a little bit during the release, but it's inevitably going to come up again during Oscar season. I understand. Um, I think that... uh, Okay, I just want to clarify. Are we talking about the fact that it does not showcase the people who were generationally damaged by this creation? Well, that and just like the the sidelining of all the his like women characters. Um, Yeah, I mean, he has a dead wife problem. Like, we fucking get it. And now it's a dead girlfriend problem. I don't know if I loved the idea that he used the quote, um, I I have become (laughs) death, like, as he's having sex. Like, I thought that was a weird move. But, you know, I thought Florence Pugh was 
underutilized, but also the story isn't about their relationship. So I understand. I think that Emily Blunt was given a lot of like play this up when like, you know, it was a little community theatery at some points, but I don't think that's Emily Blunt's fault. I think that's how the character was written. I mean, Christopher Nolan even said, back to your point about Florence Pugh, that he felt bad that he didn't give Florence Pugh more to do. Yeah, you have fucking Florence Pugh in your movie. You want to try to use her. But I do think that she made the best of every scene she was in. Um, I think that part, that was really great. As far as the inevitable backlash of how horrific these atomic bombs were on the Japanese people, there is no good way to do that in this film. I think that... The way he handled it is possibly the best way to handle it. You see Oppenheimer instantly understand the evil he has created and be really tortured by that. And that might be the only way to handle it since it's mostly from his point of view to begin with. Just to point people, if you are interested in an argument for or against how this was handled, uh, read Justin Chang's kind of analysis on it in the LA Times. I think he puts it pretty concisely. And the fact that this movie is subjective. It's from Oppenheimer's point of view. Correct. So he wasn't in Japan. He I think you could have even done without the like the visuals of like the skin coming off and the and the corpse. Like I don't think you actually needed any of that because that's not what this film is about. Yeah. Um we have seen examples of like disasters shown poorly, like uh such as the atomic bomb, just watch Eternals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't think that's kind of like a nothing burger of a controversy to me um i think if other people have other thoughts about it especially people who kind of care more about history and whatnot but like that movie can be made and and will be made and i don't think people who want that story to be told want christopher nolan telling it anyway um so that's where i think it's kind of a moot point um let's move on from the barbenheimer to a visual feast in another sense um and i'm talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the sequel to 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, um, starring one Miles Morales as he learns about all the things that are going on in the multiverse, to put it bluntly. This was probably the most visually arresting movie of the summer and one of my favorite animated movies of the year so far, obviously. This is a movie that we were hotly anticipating. Um, and Amanda, whose Twitter handle used to be Spider-Manda, um, <laughs> what did you think of Across the Spider-Verse? Only originals will remember. Um, I was going to say, I think that if Barbenheimer had not been this year, Spider-Verse would have been the movie of the summer. Like It would have been Spider-Verse versus the movie we're going to talk about next. Yeah, for sure. Spider-Verse was actually the first film I got to review for the, for the paper, which is very exciting. And I am so fortunate that that was the first movie I got to review because I loved this film. It was weird to give my first review five stars, but this is a five-star movie. (laughs) It is so unbelievably beautiful to look at. I love how each multiverse has a different feel to it, and thus I don't need, you know, some sort of like quippy remark about how we're in universe 239 or whatever. Like I can tell we're in Gwen's world because it is watercolory and it's got blue and purples and things like that. And like, I know I'm in Spider-Punk's world because it's edgy, it's more graphic, things like that. I loved just the visual storytelling in its own. I feel like you could watch this movie on mute and like still have a remarkable time. 
I do understand that animators and artists put in millions of hours of work on this. And there is a conversation among them about fair pay. And I absolutely completely agree that, you know, if people are making art, they should be paid for it no matter what. And this movie is art. Like, it's just, it's so beautiful. And it's also a movie where, like, you don't really have to like superhero films or Spider-Man to really be into this movie. I suggested it to my mom and she loved it. Like, she watched the first one. I think it was on Netflix at the time after I reviewed it. And then she went and saw the second one and adored it. Yeah, I think Spider-Verse is just both into and across are just testaments to why animation and animated movies as a medium is as much a prestigious art form as live action because there's things that they're doing in these movies that you can't do in live action like you can't have spider ham or you can't have moon batten and it looking good the craft and the care you know we talked about it with barbie we even talked about it with oppenheimer but just the attention to detail in in this movie as well i mean there's so much to unpack that you can't even begin to look at or see or spot on your first, second, fourth, or eighth viewing. Um, this movie just begs to be rewatched, and the first one does as well. I rewatched the first one with my nephew, who also loves these movies, and we were both just tripping out on stuff that was seeded in the first movie that kind of bled into the second movie as well. Like The way that they're telling the story has been really impressive. I thought, like you said, the voice acting, like Shameik Moore as Miles Morales is doing something really great. Haley mm-hmm. Steinfeld uh, got a lot more to do as Gwen Stacy, Brian Tyree Henry, Jason Schwartzman, Issa Rae, everybody here really knocked it out of the park, especially I, I love Daniel Kaluuya as Spider-Punk. So good. Uh, and the way that they let him flex like with the South London slang. And I think these two movies are two of the top three movies in all of the Spider-Man movie catalog. Yeah. Um, and they might not be three. Um, so uh, I cannot wait for the next one. So I think that, you know, those are probably the top three movies of the blockbuster year and you know this fourth movie we're going to talk about definitely assumed it would be in that top four i have some thoughts on it and i might want to hear your thoughts first so zach you just saw this this so we're talking about mission impossible 7 dead reckoning part one for a little appetizer i guess let the audience know how many of the previous mission impossible movies had you seen before seeing this one all six. Okay, so you're fully caught up. I was going to say, uh, uh, if we we're looking at the summer slate as like tiered off, this is in my first tier of the movies that have come out um, in the last few months. I-, I loved this movie. It's stupid, and I-, I loved it. But there's another couple of movies that came out that were stupid that I did not love. I was just thinking as far as like box office hits, I feel like Barbie... Spider-Verse and Oppenheimer were sort of in a class onto their own that I feel like Mission Impossible, I would have, you know, six months ago assumed it would be in there as well. But I think it came out really close to Barbenheimer. And once that was in theaters, people were just seeing that instead. Yeah, 100%. I think um, whenever Home Alone came out, there was like the Home Alone effect. Um, Movies just underperformed because Home Alone was in theaters. Yeah. I think that happened to Mission Impossible. Uh, I, I think that if this movie comes out, I don't know, next month, it rules the box office for a while. It takes up all the, the IMAX screens, etc. So I don't think that it has anything to do with the quality of the movie. I think this movie is sick. He jumped <laughs> off a cliff on a motorcycle. I did see that. 
So I decided while I was watching the Mission Impossible movies ahead of Dead Reckoning, I don't care about the plot (laughs) of the films. Um, (laughs) Because like it's all just gobbledygook that I don't understand. Why is Tom Cruise running after this guy? I don't care. He's just running after him. I know that the guy that Tom Cruise is running after something he needs to get. Or he's running away from someone that he needs to get away from. And that's all that matters. Whatever they construct in terms of a plot it's not even secondary it's like so far down the list of the depth chart of things that i care about when it comes to mission impossible movies like what's the rabbit's foot who knows but philip seymour hoffman says where's the rabbit's foot in a menacing way that i will never forget i don't know what rebecca ferguson's character does i think she's in mi6 but she wore a yellow dress in the fifth one and i can't forget that yellow dress um there's a fine line of like stupid that takes away from the plot and then there's a fine line of like the plot doesn't matter and for me personally, I don't care about the plot of these movies. Since Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise have teamed up on these movies, especially Christopher McQuarrie has directed the last three, I think that the franchise has really just clicked into place as to delivering on what an action blockbuster is um, with like the biggest movie star working today. I assume that you are not as high on this film as I am, but I assume that you're also not as high on the franchise as I am. So I've seen Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 7. So I <laughs> very little understanding, but I really loved Mission Impossible 1. I just, you know, was it nothing else was like streaming at the time I watched one so that I never went back to the other ones. And I wasn't about to watch like five other films in time to see this movie in theaters. So I was like, you know what? What would Tom want me to do? He'd want me to see us in theaters no matter what. So I went to the theater, saw it. I had one of the worst theater experiences I had all summer during this movie, which definitely like played into my movie viewing, which was unfortunate. It's not it's not what they want. But I'm really glad to hear that you don't care about the plot um, because this movie script is bad. The movie script is so corny. Some of the writing is so... Yeah. It's so... That Absolutely. I was like, is this a spoof of itself? Like, what's happening right now? This is also how I felt during Armageddon. <laughs> so, this movie is pizza. Like Mission makes- Impossible is pizza. I want it cheesy. I yeah. want it greasy. I want it filling. And I, and I want it to just like play straight to like the dopamine sensors in my brain. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not thinking about this at a deep level. Maybe Tom Cruise is because it's probably some like messianic christ thing that he's trying to go for like there's a gabriel and a maria in the backstory of this film yeah but i don't care because simon Pegg is yelling at him because he needs to jump off the cliff and just man up i like the new you know ai villain i think that's a really cool idea this idea that you can't trust any sort of technology when they're a very tech-based movie franchise i think that's like a really cool wrinkle in everything i really had a hard time with the script and thus like when other things were happening, I was like, Ugh. I totally understand what you're saying. Like, it, again, this is not a perfect movie. The entity, I don't know what that is. I don't understand how I'm this, into like, it, though. That wasn't that wasn't tough for me. I liked the entity. I know as, as two people who like probably rewatched Age of Ultron a lot. Like, I get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like I like, all right, he's Tom Cruise versus Ultron. Yeah. Cool. I think this is like one of the sexiest action blockbusters to come out in a few years, honestly. They just keep giving Tom Cruise British women to like kind of have chemistry with. And like he doesn't really have chemistry with any of them. But like I like watching it. Really fun to watch Haley Atwell have fun. I think another thing is Tom Cruise for me, 2000 and 
10 on has such like a weird energy and I feel like he's playing Tom Cruise movie star in everything that he's in instead of like the character he's supposed to be playing. Like I feel like you could have taken MI7 Tom Cruise and put him in Top Gun Maverick and vice versa. Like those are not two different characters. That's just Tom Cruise. I actually will push back and say that Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible movies, especially with Christopher McQuarrie, lets himself be a doofus way more than like Maverick is. Oh, that's so funny because I feel like every scene I can just feel him like over an editor being like, make me look cooler. I mean, that's just action movies, though. Maybe that's my problem. Like, <laughs> like you, you also don't love action movies. That like you're just describing what a great action movie is. <laughs> Tom Cruise and Ethan Hunt are symbiotic at this point. But again, I'm not going to a Mission Impossible movie expecting acting. Like, I'm, I'm genuinely not. Like, Simon Pegg is doing Simon Pegg things. Yeah. Rebecca Ferguson, Vanessa Kirby, and Haley Atwell are all just doing their moves. Like, they're all yeah. just doing. Vanessa what Kirby was great at. in this film. Rebecca Ferguson literally has a knife, and like, I was just like, oh, she's doing the Dune thing. Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> you, you yeah. know like. It's an all-star game. You don't go to the all-star game wanting to see like intricate plays. You're like, go do the thing. Do your move. All of this being said, I did not not like the movie. That is definitely not my takeaway. There are parts of it I enjoyed more than other parts of it. I love that they're in Europe. I loved the car scene with the handcuffs. That was super fun. There was a lot of tension in the first two or three train cars that fell by the time we got to like the sixth one i was like look i know he's gonna live so can we just (laughs) move on from this again i hadn't seen a mission impossible since brian de palma's original masterpiece of mission impossible that movie is very very different the script is very different the stunts are very different tom cruise is a very different man than he was then and now it's sort of like how many times can tom cruise defy death rather than tom cruise is gonna like hang from a very thin string and like try to break into this computer so i guess that's more my point but no i will not ever yuck anyone's yum if they loved this movie all right so let's talk about tmnt another animated film teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem which is now a movie title i have said so many times on this podcast Also came out this summer, another movie I got to review for the paper. I really enjoyed it. I knew nothing about TMNT leading up to this movie, but I kind of didn't need it. Like, I had a great time. I thought the artistry of the animation was really fun. It's by the same studio that did Spider-Verse, but it's definitely more like sketches. Like, it's more hand-drawn looking almost incomplete, but like on purpose. I really enjoyed that, but I just really thought the voice acting in this movie was so fun. The four Ninja Turtles are played by four just like teenage boys that are not necessarily well-known actors, which I thought was a great choice. There was a lot of really fun parts of this film. I had a great time. What did you think of Ninja Turtles? So as a person who's been waiting for a good Ninja Turtles movie for more than a decade at this point, I love this film. The animation is filthy, but I love that this movie more than any other Ninja Turtles movie and even more than the Ninja Turtles TV shows really leans into the teenage part of it. And like the 90s movies, the cartoons, the teenagers, they're more like 18, 19 year olds, um, like kind okay. of fratty. This is like 13 you talked about the voice actors, uh, the names are Micah Abbey, uh, Shimon Brown Jr., Nicholas Cantu, and Brady Noon. There's a video of them with Ice Cube, and like they teach Ice Cube what Riz means. 
That's awesome. <laughs> you know, like uh, there's a behind the scenes feature where they're talking and the director, Jeff Rowe, is just saying like, they would just put the kids into the booth and like kind of let them riff. This movie is produced and, and written by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. It's such a them thing to do, right? Like, yeah. hey, get in there, even down to super bad. Like, hey, just go and riff. So I really enjoyed it. I thought Io Debris was awesome as April O'Neil. Really fun to hear Jackie Chan be a father, um, <laughs> a splinter. I enjoyed this movie a lot. I could tell that there were definitely things for fans, but there wasn't like a high price of admission. Like I got to enjoy it having not known most of the lore. And I think that's great. This movie and another I'll bring up later kind of lean into older millennial nostalgia in terms of this is very 90s hip hop uh, bread, early 2000s hip hop bread. I love that there is an Annie Up needle drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they were doing the team up. I, I'm a simple man born in the mid 90s who loves that and uh, loves the four mutant turtle brothers working together. Also, just want to shout out uh, student journalist April O'Neill. Yep. Fuck yeah. That's it. That's my shout out. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. All right. So, th- those are uh, some pretty high profile movies. We're going to downshift really quick, talk yeah. about this next film. A movie I adored and a movie you just watched recently, and I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts. We are talking about Celine Song's Past Lives, a romantic drama film taking place in New York and Korea. Really sprawling love story, but also a small story as well. So uh, what did you think of Past Lives? I really loved it. Greta Lee as Nora really just stole the show for me. I could spend a 100 years with Nora. I really loved this film. I thought it was very beautiful. Um, The shots are really gorgeous. The way they talk about fate and, of course, past lives, which is in Yun in Korean, was something I believe in so wholeheartedly and didn't know there was words for it before watching this movie. Definitely a big believer in the people in your life who are there, are meant to be there, the people you meet all the time. I loved this idea that even if you brush somebody and you're, you touch for just a moment, like that person means something to you in all of the other lives beforehand or in the future. And I think that that idea is really gorgeous. And I thought about it a lot. And I have also had long-term relationships through childhood and adulthood and teenage dumb and all that kind of stuff. And there really is something gorgeous about like not needing to really explain yourself to somebody who just knows you because they've known you your whole life. And that's such a particular type of love that is hard to ever get again because how many people, <laughs> how many people know you since you're a kid? Um, but I also believe that there's such beauty in the idea that you can meet someone as like a fully formed version of yourself and that's who you fall in love with. I mean, this idea that they're talking about, you know, toward the end, that that girl you knew 20 years ago isn't before you anymore. And like, that's reality. And I think that that is really touching. I literally just watched this movie like 24 hours ago. So it's super fresh in my mind. I really enjoyed this film. This is my favorite film of the year so far. I think it's beautiful and melancholic and aching and like sexy and the script is so sharp. The performances, like you said, Greta Lee, Tao Yu. And then I love seeing John Morago as like the husband, but also this third figure in this triangle. Uh, he is from First Cow. Uh, and I think mm. he 
really captures this like soft but firm energy that you need to kind of balance out the um, romantic energy that's going on between these two main characters. Just to your point about this film looking beautiful in the shots, this is probably my favorite shot film of the year so far. The cinematographer's name is Shabir Kirchner. Uh, he did Skate Kitchen in 2018, and also uh, people might know him from Small Axe. He mm, was a cinematographer mm-hmm. for Steve McQueen's film series, or whatever you wanted to call that. Uh, Lover's Rock, Mangrove, uh, two things that I loved a lot in 2020. It kind of reminded me of Come On, Come On, where you would use yeah. these like, long lenses, and you would be close up and like it'd be just like a medium shot or two shot on your subjects but um the image is compressed and so there's like a depth of field to it that looks like you're almost peering in on a moment you're not supposed to be watching and that's not yours which is perfect because the movie starts with this idea of the two people that you don't see until the very end which they're just in the background of who do you think these three people are to each other and that's what you do through the whole movie Yes, absolutely. I think this is one of my favorite endings of a film in a long time as well. Um, I won't spoil it uh, because I think you should just come to it as open as possible if you haven't seen this film. But the sequence at the end is um, is really stunning. I pray that it gets a nomination. I know. Um, I don't don't know if it will, but A24 has a lot of capital in um, Hollywood. Obviously, literally everything everywhere all at once just won an Oscar. I think that's A24's second best picture Oscar um, after Moonlight. Truly, I think it's one of my favorite movies of the last like five years. If you can see it in a theater, see it. It's actually worth that kind of visual immersion, despite it being a smaller story. But if you have to watch it on an airplane, watch it on an airplane. Um, I I just really enjoyed this film. There's also a really hilarious tidbit regarding John Morago's character's book's title. I'll just leave it at that. For as much as we've been talking about blockbusters, um, we kind of slowing things down a little bit and and watching a movie like this. It's really enjoyable, which also kind of brings us to another movie which had a much higher profile because it's one of our signature American directors, and that is Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. I'm not the West person of the two of us, so why don't you just take it from here? I loved Asteroid City. I was not as enthusiastic about French Dispatch as other people were. You know, as this movie came out, of course, it was very easy for people to be like, here is our top Wes Anderson rankings and blah, blah, blah. And I read every single one. A lot of people have French Dispatch higher up than I do. So I went into this film being like, I really need a win here, Wes. I was not crazy about the last one. I really would love to love this one. And I adored it. And I'm seeing some mixed results, but I really loved this movie. And I think it's because he got back to what I love about Wes Anderson. And it's that his writing is so heartbreaking, which is like a funny thing to say. But obviously, it's gorgeous. It's pastel. It's like so well shot, yada, 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 all the things that you see, the things that make trends on TikToks. But I was like, pretty on board. I was like, this movie's super fun, like, you know, light, whatever. But when he breaks down that fourth wall for the last time, and you see Jason Schwartzman talking with Adrian Brody, and then later talking to Margot Robbie, I finally understood why that whole black and white part was a part of the film. I was a shell of a person after that, because that is, to me, that's life. Am I playing the character of Amanda Luberto correctly? I don't know, but I have to keep going. That's what this is all about. That scene really like sealed the whole deal for me. This is a really top-notch 
movie. And also, like, it's in the desert, and it's gorgeous, and there's a vending machine that makes gin martinis with a lemon twist. I want one! (laughs) (laughs) I bought a Blu-ray player, and then immediately bought this movie on (laughs) Blu-ray, because I heard it wasn't coming out on DVD. (laughs) Oh my god. What did you think of the film, Zach? I love hearing people talk about how much they love Wes Anderson movies. And part of it is because like, I have a defect in my brain that the first time I watch a Wes Anderson film, it kind of just washes over me. And I think back to when we did the Tenenbaums podcast and how I was kind of like watching the movie and it was like whatever. And I, I don't really connect with the deadpan tone of his movies often. And then you have the it's been a hard year, dad. And I think he's been chasing that like moment that gut punch uh whether it's like the leopard shark or the the chef spiel in french dispatch he always like hypnotizes me and then like sneaks a gut punch that i don't realize hit until like i'm absorbing criticism about the movie i loved looking at this one i know that's like cliche to say about wes anderson films but sometimes i kind of don't vibe with whatever the color palette is or whatever the tone or the performances i really think this is a great summer Wes Anderson film. I agree. Um, you, you know, it's very pastel, I, like the shot on Kodak film. With these stacked casts, he so quickly crafts incredibly interesting characters that I wish I could spend more time with. I want to spend more time with Maya Hawk. I want to spend more time with Hope Davis. I want to spend more time with Steve Carell. But at the same time, I love that this is such a small contained movie. I love that there's a small mushroom cloud off in the distance in the summer of Oppenheimer. Uh, I know. It's hilarious. But I liked this movie. I think I liked it on first watch more than I liked French Dispatch. Um, okay. But I really love French Dispatch on rewatch. So I need to rewatch Asteroid City as well. But there is something where I, I just can't like lock in to Wes Anderson the first time. And I think that's totally fair. I mean, if you had asked me what I thought of Oppenheimer the first time I saw it, I would be way less enthusiastic than I was the second time I saw it. And I loved that this movie got back to some of that heart, but also had, you know, misbehaving kids casting spells and kids that are way too smart doing space programs and teachers falling in love with country singers. And <laughs> and I like I want to see Maya Hawk in a hundred more Wes Anderson films. I think she's perfect. I completely agree that it hit you with the dad. It's been a tough year, which is always what I'm looking for in his films. I think that's the thing. Like, you know how people anticipate a twist in an M. Night Shyamalan movie? Yes. I'm anticipating, like, the thesis statement from Wes Anderson at the end of his film. And I almost feel like I should just spoil it for myself. And so I could just watch it with that lens so I can actually just enjoy it. Because when I'm watching it, I'm just seeing all these movie stars in a cool way, like, submit themselves to playing to Wes Anderson's tempo. Like, I think this is some of Tom Hanks's best acting in a few years. I agree. I had a really fun time with him in this film. But he's not doing a Tom Hanks thing, but he's yeah. doing nuanced acting that's really accomplished and, and enjoyable. It's fun that like the summer movie that's extremely your shit is obviously it's Wes Anderson and dioramic filmmaking, but like impeccably and and particularly crafted and set and designed. And the one that's kind of my shit is like a little like messier and like if there's people in the movie of past lives that maybe not know they're in the movie. I don't know how that film yeah. was photographed. But, that's super uh, fair. It's like a little bit more naturalistic. And I think that's why we have this podcast. So we can cross over and, and stretch our, our tastes a bit. A film that is both extremely our shit, because we are incredibly, chronically, tragically, proudly online, is Bottoms. Raunchy high school comedy directed and written by 
Emil Siegelman starring Rachel Sennett and Io Adebri and Marshawn Lynch. This movie fucks. This movie's so good. <laughs> this movie's fucking hilarious. This is the funniest movie I saw this summer. And like a pretty good summer for comedy. Yeah. Much better summer for comedies than it was for horror movies. For a good chunk of the summer, the funniest moment I had seen in a theater was Florence Pugh mounting Killian Murphy while he says I have become death. Yeah. But then I saw Bottoms and then like this movie is now the funniest thing I've seen all summer. I love this. I think this might be the movie that makes me stop referring to Rachel Sennett as Shiva Baby. Because <laughs> like a hundred percent during Bodies, 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 I was like, oh, Shiva Baby. There she is. <laughs> Um, but now she's Rachel Sennett, and I think that's great. Excellent bisexual representation in this movie, Bottoms. Love that. I also loved finding out that Marshawn Lynch basically ad-libbed all of his parts. It's such a random casting. It's I can't, so funny. What's the crossover there? Like, I, I need to know. I they've given know. interviews, but I need to know so much more about how, how that happened. Like, Marshawn Lynch should be the teacher. There's so many good call-outs to other high school movies in this yes. film, which I adore. One of them, of course, being Heathers, a movie yes. we've talked about on this podcast, when the guy who's like clearly the Christian Slater character at the end, he's like, that was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so funny. I thought that was so good. I just really thought the script was amazing. It was also very sweet. They deal with sexuality without being like, hey, everybody, here's what sexuality is all about. It's clearly written by this generation for this generation instead of like 50-year-olds trying to write Gen Z. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah, I think the reason why it clicks so well for us, too, is because Rachel Sennett, Emil Segelman, and Io Debris are all our age. Yeah. Like yeah. they were born in like 95, 94, 96. Again, we are chronically online and so are they. Iowa Debris, one of the most prolific and best uh, letterbox users out there as well. But I do think this film is just going to be my baseline for how I think of both of them. I know they had their YouTube videos and extensive sketch shows. And Iowa Debris was awesome in The Bear. And Rachel said it has been great in Shiva Baby and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. I, I love all the like the smaller performances too. Like I thought Ruby mm -hmm. Cruz was great. As, like, so good. Friend. That was like probably my favorite performance of the film. Yeah, Kaya Gerber is playing Kaya Gerber, and that's great, too. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> also love that we're getting bloopers back in films. Oh, my God. Those were so good. <laughs> All right. So I think those are probably the eight movies that we enjoyed. The biggest movies we wanted to talk about. Yeah, but we're going to rapid fire through some. You kind of alluded to horror this summer, this year, and there was a big release this summer, Talk to Me. What did you think about that film? I really loved Talk to Me. It is... Now, A24's highest performing horror movie, it wow. just surpassed Hereditary, and I'm interested to see how Talk To Me does once it's on VOD. I think that it was really original. I think it had a great premise, really fun performances, and there was really not a lot of good horror movies that came out this year, or this summer, to be specific. I mean, we're coming off a great year for horror, too. I know. Such a good year. So I'm hoping more in the future, but Talk To Me was really excellent, and I was uh, really impressed. One of the movies you've liked so much this year is uh, You Hurt My Feelings. 
Yes, this is Nicole Hall of Center written, directed comedy drama starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies. I really love this movie. Uh, Nicole Hall of Center continues to make movies about just middle-aged people living middle-aged lives. Um, I do think it's just like a simple story talking about kind of like these upper middle class New York people kind of going through a relatively normal conflict and handling it like normal people. And it's just a really enjoyable thing to watch. Um, so I definitely recommend that. Speaking of feelings, uh, No Hard Feelings, The Return of Jennifer Lawrence, a film I think you and I both really enjoyed. Loved it. I laughed so much during this movie. One of my very favorite tweets, and you can take this out if you want to, but I just have to share. No Hard Feelings is coming to Netflix. And someone like quote tweeted it, it was like, Netflix, you cowards, show the pause and rewind rate of this movie. <laughs> that Jesus was Christ. so funny. Um, but no, this movie is really great. It's heartfelt. It is hilarious. I just, I had a really great time in the theater seeing this one. To me, this is like a summer comedy. Like this is what I want. I yeah. want one every year that's just like this. Andrew Barth Feldman's also great in this film. Um, shout out to his very small role in High School Musical, the musical the series. Have you seen Joyride? I haven't seen Joyride. Okay, so uh, just in keeping with the theme of raunchy comedies this summer, also wanted to acknowledge Joyride, Adele Lim directed film starring Ashley Park, Sherry Cola, Stephanie Hsu, uh, Sabrina Wu. Really enjoyable, really like aggressively raunchy, um, probably the gnarliest comedy of uh, the summer. There's a sight gag in this one that I will not spoil, but is shocking. And okay. also, I sobbed during this movie um, for very specific reasons, but uh, I enjoyed it as well. There's also maybe my favorite cameo of the year so far in Joyride, so I'll just leave it at that. A movie that we both saw and I think we're impressed by was uh, They Clone Tyrone. Yeah, this is a Netflix movie. I had a great time. I think that maybe it's a touch too long. They could have cut a scene or two, but I had a really fun time. I think the era that it's in is really fun. It makes for great costuming. I thought the three main actors were really great. I would love to do a They Clone Tyrone and Sorry for Bothering You double feature. I think that would be so fun. I loved John Boyega in this role. I love John Boyega in general. Like I know you do. <laughs> I would have loved to see this in the theater, um, but it is on Netflix. Tiana Paris is awesome in it as well. Yeah, really fun. Really loved what they went for, Joel Taylor and uh, directorial debut, even if it was not a perfect film. Yeah. Another movie that I saw that I really enjoyed and didn't have many expectations about was Blackberry, which is kind yes. of a funny thing to say. Blackberry is the film I wish Air was. Oh, that's so funny. I, was, I did think about Air as well when I watched it. I love the pacing. I love the timing. I love the writing of Blackberry. There's like a tension to it that... You know, Air sort of felt like a giant commercial and BlackBerry felt like a movie. I went in with like no expectations. I had a full theater like a month after oh, wow. it released and I had a great time. I really liked this film. It's no one will probably ever talk about it again, but it was worth seeing in the mush gas of all of the these are products and we're going to make movies about how they came to be summer that we had. This was my favorite one. Yeah, I think I like this one a little less than you, but I did enjoy it. I thought it was like well done, like you said, the writing. Really f crazy to see Jay Burchell and Glenn Howarth like play serious characters. The bald cap, though, 
on on Glenn Howard and wild was rough. When I was in eighth grade, I did want the BlackBerry Storm. I thought the clicking screen looked cool, but instead I got the Verizon Chocolate Three. That's cool. I did have yeah. a BlackBerry, but had to send all those emails. Well, yeah, it was so important to me at 12. It was because, like, my dad had a BlackBerry, and they're like, would you like a free extra phone? And he was like, sure, here you go, daughter. I think the coolest phone of the aughts was the sidekick, though. Absolutely. Would have died yeah. for a sidekick. Never got one. All right. And then <laughs> there's some mega movies that came out this year that did not do as well as maybe studios wanted them to. And I saw none of them. So I'm going to let you go <laughs> talk about them. Yeah, so on the outline, I just wrote stupid shit. Um, <laughs> I, probably the stupidest shit that came out this summer was The Flash. I didn't see that movie, but it, it flopped, so who I cares? also did not see that movie. Movies that succeeded financially, though, maybe not critically, uh, Fast X, the 10th installment, or I guess the 11th installment of the Fast and Furious franchise, 10th of the main storyline. I will say this was probably my favorite of the film since they went full dumb, which was around Fate of the Furious. So it's is the third worst Fast and Furious film, but the best in the last few years. Another film and a film that I was alluding to when we talked about TMNT is Transformers Rise of the Beasts, directed by Stephen Capel Jr., who also directed Creed 2, um, starring Anthony Ramos of In the Heights and Hamilton, Dominique Fishback, who was in Judas and the Black Messiah. This cast is pretty good. It also features Toe DeWigwe, who was one of my favorite rappers. This movie for the first half is like just a 90s hip hop crime film. Which That's cool. Is cool, and there's you know great music in the film, and then it becomes you know a Transformers film. But I will say it's better than the last few that starred Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg is in the Transformers movies now. After the Shia LaBeouf movies, uh, it turned into a Mark Wahlberg franchise, oh. and then this is kind of a reboot. The Bumblebee movie that came out a few years ago, starring Haley Steinfeld, this is more in that realm. Uh, okay. B- Bumblebee actually a pretty good movie. And I think the first half of Rise of the Beasts is pretty decent. But then there's a second half. Another blockbuster, big IP, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Did you get to this film? No, it was one of those ones where by the time I was like, okay, I've seen all the movies that I like really want to see this summer. I should probably see Indiana Jones. The only showing was at like three in the afternoon on like Tuesdays, like halfway across town. Like no one was showing it anymore. I actually really had a good time watching uh, Dial of Destiny. I thought Harrison Ford was really bringing it. He still has his fastball. All right. Um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a great addition to this franchise. It's great to see her. It, I didn't expect to see her in an adventure franchise. Um, and then this movie gets weird for the last like half hour or so. But to that point, like again, it was just another fun adventure movie in the summer. Mads Mikkelsen's playing an evil European antagonist. So everybody's really playing the hits here. I liked it better than Crystal Skull. Even if there is some convoluted plotting, it's an Indiana Jones movie. You know, we're just there to say, give them hell, Indiana Jones. But that kind of wraps up the quote unquote stupid shit of the summer. (laughs) We're going to run through some categories. Let's talk about um, our favorite performance of the year. I'm sure we have a ton. We already cited a bunch. But if you were to pinpoint one, what was your favorite performance of the summer movie slate? It really has to be Margot Robbie as Barbie. She Mm. just is Barbie. Which, like, is a boring pick, but that's my answer. <laughs> no, I honestly do think it's an underrated pick because a lot of people are saying, you know, Ryan Gosling stole the show. Can this, can that? And he is great. But I think Lost in the Deluge of all that is Margot Robbie. Even, again, the the, the core strength to, like, stay sitting upright while <laughs> going know. on a slide and then, like, stepping onto the fake pool. Like, incredibly it's impressive. Unreal. 
Uh, what about you? I will cite Io Debris in Bottoms. Um, I think oh, yeah. she's the kind of the heart of the film. She and Rachel said it play off each other so well. You can tell that they have been friends for a long time. But just the comedic tension and timing, it's really fun to see her in that as well. And she hits a crane kick in some Sambas. So um, 10 out of 10 for me. Do you have a favorite scene of the summer? My favorite scene of the summer is the final showdown in Bottoms on the football <laughs> field. When they realize you that killed the guy. Pine- like when they're they, dead. <laughs> from pineapple juice to bloopers, create the distraction, like going out of the field, like the whole night, the fight, like everything about it. I was just like, like a rollicking good time. What was your favorite scene? My favorite scene uh, is the car chase in Rome in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Incredible screwball comedy energy and chemistry with Haley Atwell and Tom Cruise. We obviously have been trying to get to a lot of these movies, um, but it's impossible to see everything. Um, just wanted to cite a couple movies that we didn't get to see uh, in case people are clamoring for like our opinions on them or whatever. I did want to see Blue Beetle. I haven't gotten to see it yet. And then another movie I wanted to see but haven't is Shortcomings, Randall Park's directorial debut starring Justin Min and Sherry Cola. Friend of the pod, Jose Youngs, has said it is a very faithful adaptation um, of the graphic novel. And so I'm intrigued to see what he means by that. Is there any movies that you did not get to see that you want to? Definitely high on my list of movies I still want to go see is Joyride. We talked about it already, but I'm really anticipating that movie coming out on VOD so that I can see it. Um, Looks really, really funny. I was upset to have missed it. Nice. But of the ones we did see, was there one that was a big surprise, a pleasant surprise for you? Probably TMNT for me, um, just because I had very little expectations and I went for work and had a blast. I was at like 10 in the morning in a theater full of children what about you Nimona it's this Netflix um, animated film that was under the Disney banner but then got dropped and then re-picked up it's based on a graphic novel um, that came out in I think 2015 uh, really enjoyable and sweet Chloe Grace Moretz and Riz Ahmed are the two lead voice actors um, I love and I Riz Ahmed a lovely job we talked about last time in our end of the year pod the concept of an MVP so like Adam Driver uh, in 2020 when there was like Marriage Story and that movie where he sings with a doll. Colin Farrell last year um, with his Mm -hmm. group of movies. Do you have an MVP of the year so far? Yeah, it's A.O. Debry. (laughs) She's in everything (laughs) and it's fucking awesome. She is. Obviously, season two of, yeah, season two of The Bear is phenomenal. She's also in Theater Camp, which was another like movie that kind of got overlooked, which was like better than I thought it was going to be. That was super fun. That's like on streaming now. You can go check that one out. That's my MVP of the year so far. Nice. Mine's Margot Robbie. Um, Hell yeah. Obviously, she is the the spearhead of Barbie, but also I think probably has the best scene in Asteroid City as well. Yeah. Um, Won't say more than that, but I hope all the good things come to Miss Margot, um, especially after the slander I gave Babylon last year. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so we made it through the summer slate. So many good movies. What a win. We're back. We're so back. Movies Hell are back. Yeah. And then they're going to go away again because uh, yep. they're not paying the writers or actors. But um, there are movies coming out this uh, fall and this winter, as far as we know. Um, oh, my God. I can't wait. Even if they're not Dune Part 2. What are some of the more anticipated movies that are set to come in the rest of 2023 for you? Uh, Saw X is coming out at the end of the month. And I literally can't wait. Oh, <laughs> I love yeah. I love the Saw series. Will this movie be good? Probably not. Will I love it? Absolutely, yes. I'm sure there's going to be some overlap here with some of the ones that you're going to mention, but Killers of the Flower Moon comes out. Of course. Middle of October. 
like the most anticipated movie of the year for everybody. My fucking main man, David Fincher, has yep. a new movie coming out. The Killer got rave reviews. <laughs> like quite literally can't wait. Um, my movie that I cannot wait to see is Poor Things. I love mm-hmm. Yorgos Lanthimos. I was texting you and our good friend Maya that I think he might be one of my favorite movie makers of all time. When I started watching The Lobster as a comfort film, that's when I was like, (laughs) maybe I just like this guy's style. Also is getting really, really good reviews from my guy, Mark Ruffalo, which I'm fucking excited about. Mark Ruffalo, capital T, the capital A actor returning. I know I mentioned uh, some big ones, but... What are your movies so far? Yeah, so of course, a good chunk of those. I'm highly anticipating this movie called The Creator, directed by Gareth Edwards, starring John David Washington. That looks um, really good. Kind of looks like a sci-fi lone wolf and cub thing. Um, so I'm really intrigued. It's an original story, so I'm all for it. I really want to watch this movie called The First Slam Dunk. It's this uh, Japanese hmm. film directed by Takahiko Inoue. And it seems like a like an anime-tinged like basketball film. Um, cool. That I've heard. Uh, good things about it won the Japanese Academy Prize of Animation and apparently it's like I think a top five grossing anime film ever so I need to find a way to watch it I honestly should probably just hit up Jose Young's speaking of sports can't wait to watch Next Goal Wins uh, Taika Waititi's film starring Michael Fassbender about the uh, American Samoa soccer team I can't wait either. I saw a commercial for that the other, or a trailer for that the other day, play in front of something I was watching, and I was like, that looks like so much fun. Like, Fastbender might be back. Speaking of guys being dudes, can't wait for The Bike Riders. The Bike Riders, directed and written by Jeff Nichols, based on a true story, I guess, of like a motorcycle club in Chicago. It has Austin Butler, Tom Hardy, Michael Shannon, Jodie Comer. I believe this is the movie Jodie Comer was in and had to pull out of Napoleon for. So I'm really intrigued to see what she's got going on. She has a thick Chicago accent. I will always trust that Scouse queen um, with whatever she wants to do. I'll also shout out Napoleon, Ridley Scott, Joaquin Phoenix. I love Joaquin Phoenix, so I'm in. I love Vanessa Kirby, so uh, yeah, I'm also in. Truly. And then lastly, I know we've cited like 87 movies, but here's the 88th. The Boy and the Heron, Hayao Miyazaki's yes. final film. We finally got like a teaser trailer of it. Uh, there hasn't been any promotional material for this movie because what else do you need? That movie is supposed to come out soon in America. I, it can't come out soon enough, but I think I'm going to spend the fall uh, going through Martin Scorsese and Hayao Miyazaki films, so it's going to be wow. a great time for me. That's a great idea. There's only like a month left before Killers of the Flower Moon. Are we doing a Scorsese swap for November? Yes. Okay. Alright, so we did it. it was, this was a great little bonus episode. So fun. Um, fun to talk about the movies that we've been seeing recently. I know. Um, but, you know, We'll get back to the swaps in like three weeks, I guess. Like, (laughs) listen to our last one. Listen to the back catalog ones I know you guys haven't watched yet or haven't listened to yet. As you watch movies, you should go back and then listen to our podcasts about those We have an evergreen podcast. It's super evergreen. Um, Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this one. This one is a little less evergreen, but... Um, you know, you watch these movies three years from now, come hear what we got to say about Barbie. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. You can always find a regular scheduled episode of this podcast on the second Tuesday of the month. Bonus pods as we see fit. Please follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod and on Twitter at BlindSpottersZach. Where can people find you online? 
You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pocklib. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. Amanda, where can people find you? You can find me across all platforms at Amanda Luberto. We did it. Excellent. Bye. Sublime. <laughs>